The news and opinions expressed on Occupy Radio may not necessarily reflect the views of KWVA Eugene, the University of Oregon, or the Associated Students of the University of Oregon. From KWVA in Eugene and the Pacifica Network, this is Occupy Radio, covering stories of resilience and resistance, integrating activism into our everyday lives. Okay, uh, good evening. Um, Welcome to uh, Left Out on KWVA, and your all-volunteer Air Force tonight will be uh, Joe Tyndall and... And I'm David Sierlupe. Okay. As always, uh, we're here to take your calls um, about the news from world to local, and that number is 541-346-0645. And let's see, now some old guy protest music. That clip you just heard was from March 14, 2012, Occupiers. Left Out became Occupy Radio, and in the nearly four years since, we've kept an eye on the corporate takeover of America and the rise of the police and surveillance states. Join us for a final retrospective on the time that Rivera and I have shared on this final episode of Occupy Radio. Welcome to all of our listeners, far and wide. I'm your host, Rivera Sun, and you are listening to Occupy Radio. This is our last show, listeners, and I know my co-host, David Getchi, Sierra Lupe, is reaching this moment with a twinge of nostalgia. How are you doing, Getch? Yeah, I'm twingy all over the place. <laughs> yes, this is a momentous occasion. I don't know what I'm going to do. Uh, you know, I, I do still have Chaos Theory Radio to uh, throw my energy into, but man, almost four years, and it's it's it ends with this show. Maybe you'll catch up on a little bit of the lost sleep that you've had over the <laughs> years of editing Occupy Radio at midnight onward. We'll see about that. You know, one of the things I'm hoping for, Rivera, is that my reading will pick up, you know, because uh-huh. that I've, I, you know, people still give me, uh, you know, gift cards, go out and buy books and I keep on buying books and all they do is they stare accusingly at me. <laughs> well, I guess that's a good New Year's resolution for you since we're also ending Occupy Radio right at the New Year's. And so, you know, with all this extra time you have on your hand, getting to shorten your your piled up reading list might be one resolution you could keep this year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, uh, well, that's an easy one. So maybe I'll make that one. And I think the other one I'll make is that I will... Um, continue to do some sort of media work. Those are both safe and easy. <laughs> Not talking about weight loss or gain or anything else. Or giving up sugar and late night trips to Sweet Life. <laughs> uh, no, those those are those are still on the schedule. <laughs> 
Well, you know, got to keep some joys in life while we deal with the looking at the real dark stuff that goes on in the world as well. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, I don't know, every New Year's I get to this point of should I resolve or should I not resolve? And what does it mean to really resolve? Do you resolve not to resolve? Occasionally, I uh, do. It yeah. seems like a very practical approach to the whole question. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, the resol- the, the resolutions are just, uh, it's a, an, what is it, an ego bet we make with ourselves when it comes right down to it. Well, and then sometimes you look back over the year, and do you, especially a year like this for me, where I c- couldn't have ever resolved to do everything that actually ended up happening this year. I published three books, and I toured 30 cities, and if I had even, even dreamed of doing that on the first of the year in 2015, I would probably would have just put my head back under the covers and been like, that's way too much work. Uh-huh. But here we are, a year later, all that's water under the bridge with amazing adventures and stories to tell, plus not to mention the 52 Occupy Radio shows that went out every week this year. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when we're looking back for files to share on our best uh, hits of Occupy Radio, it was just too hard to choose. You know, we oh, have yeah. we've got great guests coming up this uh, this week from so many of our past episodes. And then there's so many more in the archives that we just didn't have room for on this show. People like David Bollier with the, talking about the commons and that amazing interview we had with Ra- Radley Balco about the rise of the warrior cop and Mark Maurer from the Sen- Sentencing Project. Just, the other we side are of so the rise blessed. of the warrior cop. Right, because yeah. they do go hand in hand, don't they? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We have been so blessed, Getch, in this run with Occupy Radio, this four-year run with, I guess that would be close to over 200 guests. and so. The grace and the blessing of KWVA and the support of the radio community, keeping Occupy Radio on the air and putting it out on all the other places that do air our show on a weekly basis or even an irregular basis. And also, of course, our listeners that we couldn't do this show without the listeners. We could just call each other up and talk to each other. <laughs> yeah. Would, would not have quite the impact, I don't think. I, and so, yeah, I definitely want to thank everybody who has followed Occupy Radio over the years. And I want to ask you to keep on doing that. Keep on doing it with Love and Revolution with Sherry and Rivera starting next week. Will that be next Wednesday? Uh, yes, it will. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So there are still... Big things ahead for both of us. Uh, in, That's right. In, and for all our listeners out there and uh, getting the shows out there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in the meantime, we do have our last show is a best of. And uh, we'll get to that just after a little turtleneck tea party. And for our first clip this week in our best of show, we're going to go back to Christopher Mitchell, who is the um, the founder and director. Uh, he may not be the founder. He's the director of the Community Broadband Networks for the Institute of Local Self-Reliance. That's out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. And Chris is also the host of the podcast community broadband bits and we got chris on um in that that window i think um you could you might remember this better than me rivera um after 
Wheeler, uh, Tom Wheeler of the FCC had announced what his plans are, but before those, those plans were actually implemented. So a lot of what we talked with Chris was sort of, um, there, there was a, a sort of a future cast to it. Yeah. Right, and then just one of those great ideas that we can't forget that community broadband is our version of the municipal commons for our internet and phone services. And in an era of telecom giants, it's a great idea we should all keep in mind. Definitely. And let's listen to Christopher. The term community broadband networks is something I think of as an umbrella term that refers to many different ways in which uh, a community can have a network that responds to its needs rather than just the, the needs of a massive corporation that really doesn't have the same interests as the community. So if you're in a community and you want to have great broadband Internet, I would argue that you should look at one of three models. Uh, municipal ownership, where the local government owns it, uh, or cooperative ownership would be the second model. That's more common in rural areas outside of towns. Um, and then the third is, uh, in some ways, a hybrid, which is a nonprofit type approach, where uh, the board of the nonprofit may be representing um, local people who have an interest in making sure that there's a great service available. Now, I think what we'll probably focus on today is, is municipal ownership and municipal networks, which are a form of community networks. And that's where the city itself uh, owns and sometimes operates, but not always. Uh, a network, um, often in competition with a cable or telephone company. Yes, Colorado has an odd situation where they, um, in 2005, the company that was then called Quest, which is now CenturyLink, um, that's a big telephone company, the third biggest telephone company in the United States, they pushed through this law in Colorado that made it basically impossible for local governments to offer um, to, do you, to do any telecommunications service provisioning uh, unless they had a referendum. And if you have a referendum, then you essentially free yourself from the restrictions. And that's what Boulder has done, along with um, more than 10 other communities in Colorado at this point. Um, but Colorado's kind of nice um, in that regard. Um, you know, the, it's definitely an annoyance that a community has to go through that. But communities that went through that just recently over the course of the last year had a real benefit because this terrible Comcast merger with Time Warner Cable is sitting in, F in front of the Federal Communications Commission. And while Comcast has a pending merger, they're not engaging in the dirty tactics that they often have in the past. So when Boulder had its referendum in the past fall, they didn't have a massive campaign from Comcast that was trying to confuse people. So it was sort of a, it's sort of a, an interesting time where a lot of communities in Colorado have taken advantage of Comcast not wanting to embarrass itself, um, and they're having these referendums now. Um, so uh, there's about 150 places across the United States where you could actually get service anywhere within town from a local government. And um, of those 150, there's um, about half of those are, are older cable networks that were built more than 10 or 15 years ago. And then about half of them are more modern fiber-to-the-home networks, which tend to be the, the fastest available capacities, you know, the, um, the places where you can actually get the best connectivity uh, in the country. Um, so, you know, of, we have these different approaches and uh, outside of the, the 150 that are available citywide, um, in most cases, you don't really have access as a resident. But there may be access to local businesses uh, as a way of trying to make sure that those businesses can stay in town and, and do well rather than having to move to a different town where they have a better option. So then Chris painted kind of a dire picture of, you know, the 
corporate takeover of our communication landscape, especially you know via our internet access. But uh, here's where he gives some of his uh, opinion on what our defensive measures are. Next week, when the FCC votes on the net neutrality issues, uh, they're also voting on a separate issue, which will be to turn around those laws in North Carolina and Tennessee. So we're going to reverse it in two states, and that will, first of all, result in an appeal. The industry will certainly try to um, have that reversed in the courts, um, but it will allow other states to petition as well. Um, you know, I think this is something that's going to be a multi-year process to be able to ensure that communities all have the ability to offer these um, networks. Um, but um, Senator Cory Booker is leading an effort in Congress to um, to reestablish local authority everywhere at the law of the land. And, um, you know, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. But one of the things that people need to do, and I think it doesn't really feel empowering, but people really do need to write a few letters and, and contact our elected officials to say, hey, I'm not being well served. I'm really sick of how my cable company treats me. I want more options. You, what are you going to do about it? Because... Um, the cable lobbyists, they talk to these elected officials all the time. And the telephone lobbyists are telling everyone, you know, hey, we're doing a great job. Everyone's happy. Um, and so unless people speak out, their elected officials aren't going to make this a priority. And I do think that, that there's a lot of things that can be done on the local level. But we need to make sure that the states and the federal government don't get in our way as we're doing them. And, you know, that's such a great clip to look back and reflect on since we did win a round of net neutrality laws with the FCC and a rather dramatic showdown. It's back. We keep on fighting these um, regressive bills that go through Congress and decisions by the FCC, but it was good to know we got that one. And, you know, Next Rivera, up, have- I just want to interrupt there. We, we just had the CISPA get attached to the budget bill, which undoes some of those protections that we won. So it's a continuing battle. Exactly. Never let your guard down. Be vigilant. So next up, we have Dwayne Elgin, who's a remarkable speaker and thinker, the author of Voluntary Simplicity and a proponent of a living universe in the global awakening mind. We talk to him about many subjects, but especially this idea that we need to and can take back our airwaves from the corporations that have taken them over. Looking up some information that you tipped me off to a couple weeks ago, you have this idea that actually we could take back the airways and we could actually use this technology um, to tell a different story. How would that work? Uh, okay, first of all, I want to really uh, emphasize, Rivera, uh, what you were saying that the tendency is to say, well, let's unplug from the airwaves. It's really a, a medium that's, that is so um, not serving our collective future. Let's just pull out. And basically what that's saying is, and I have so many friends that are activists of one kind or another, and they say, well, I don't own a television set. I don't watch, and I'm not going to get involved with the mass media. And as a consequence of that, we are pulling ourselves out of the collective brain, if you will, the global brain, the social nervous system of our society. So, indeed, I have said, let's not unplug, but rather engage. And, you know, I wrote this book, Voluntary Simplicity. A number of people come up to me and they say, you know, the first thing I did to simplify my life was was get rid of my TV set. And I say, well, well, go pull it out of the closet, turn it on, and watch it as a political act, as a political act. 
And I think what we need to do is to take back the airwaves because we actually own the airwaves as a public. Uh, they're ours. And the laws are unequivocal in this regard. Uh, there is no wiggle room for uh, the corporate media to do anything other than serve the public interest if the public will say what is in its interest. And we have been such a passive public that we have allowed the corporate media to just run over us and to use the airwaves to serve their their profit-making and not to serve the public interest. So for more than three decades, I've said, no, let's take back the airwaves. Let's use them for electronic town meetings, large-scale dialogues at the metropolitan level. Let's talk back to our senators. Let's talk back to a governor or to the president, for heaven's sakes, and say we are very concerned about our collective future, about climate change and species extinction and resource depletion and all the rest. So um, the tools are there. Um, and the challenge is uh, really not the law. Um, the challenge is our apathy as a citizenry to mobilize ourselves and get engaged in a collective conversation about our common future. And it means uh, here we, we have the opportunity to transform in a matter of months the conversation of democracy if we wanted as a public. Um, as it is right now, there's just a handful of people, uh, billionaires, that are putting money into uh, political advertising uh, for different candidates, and that's dominating the airwaves. It doesn't have to be that way. We own those airwaves, and if we wanted those airwaves used in a different way, we could, community by community, we could we could say we want it different. And it would be. Uh, because there is a strict legal requirement that that these broadcast television networks that use our airwaves, that includes radio as well, that uses our airwaves, must serve the public interest, convenience, and necessity. And we're moving beyond just serving the public interest to a time of serving the public necessity. It's necessary that we begin uh, recognizing the, the challenge of climate change, for example, um, and and these other uh, systemic challenges that we're facing, and use the public airwaves to uh, really engage with one another, with all of our different values and perceptions and all the rest. We're all in this together. Uh, so I'm not just pushing a, let's say, a liberal agenda. I'm pushing a an agenda for an awakened uh, democracy to talk to itself and come to new understandings about what directions to take for a more promising future. And, you know, we, we often talk about how the press is one of the only institutions directly named in our Constitution and uh, imbued with the authority to protect us from overreach. Um, and I think, Rivera, and you probably agree, uh, I think um, the freedom of our press is way more important to defending us against tyrants than uh, our right to bear arms. Oh, certainly. I think if we look at the the power of the press versus the power of the state violence and how it's used on the populace right now, as bad as the the violent armed use of guns and other weapons is, the press is actually doing greater violence on a daily 
minute-by-minute basis in terms of the misinformation, the lies, the bigotry, and the hatred that they're spreading. I think Dwayne Elgin puts forth a really good challenge to all of us who work in media to really consider whether we're fulfilling our public trust, uh, whether we're really uh, living up to, do we serve the necessity? Do we serve the convenience and the interest of the public? That's a question we should all think about in the new year going ahead. I also like to remember that Dwayne was not just speaking empty rhetoric. He also recited in that show a specific example in the 1980s, I believe, early 90s, where citizens in the Bay Area actually did take over a major news corporation and demand that they get to speak on public television um, about the Russian-American alliances to stop bigotry. So I like to remember that what he's talking about is not just uh, ideas. It's been used and done before. Something that he's put into practice. And now we're going to jump off to um, the environment and uh, novel ways that people have stepped up to defend the environment since um, just like the uh, press has been taken over by corporations, stewardship of the environment has been taken over by corporations. And uh, we got Dr. Mary Wood, who is a law professor, and she's the faculty director for the Environmental Natural Resources Law Center at the University of Oregon School of Law. And Mary wrote the uh, book, uh, Nature's Trust, Environmental Law for a New Ecological Age. And we discussed with her the doctrine of public trust and how deeply it has roots in our legal system. And let's, uh, let's give Mary a listen. Public trust doctrine is a much older principle. It, it dates back to the beginning of this country, and actually its origins date back to Roman times. It's a principle that's evident in many countries throughout the world, um, and it's constitutional in nature. And it says basically that the uh, citizens um, have property, common property rights in resources that sustain their very survival, and that government cannot impinge on these rights or give them away to, say, private corporations. They have to maintain... Um, as an endowment for future generations. And so we're not talking about private property rights to exploit. We're talking about public property rights that have been recognized since the beginning of this nation to steward resources and to sustain these resources, not deplete them in just one generation, but rather to sustain them so that our children and their children and future generations and in fact all species can um, can um, be supported and endure on this planet and in this country. Modern public trust cases that are at the leading edge of this body of law say that government as trustee of this um, earth endowment or this natural endowment must protect the quality as well as the quantity and abundance of these resources. Um, and so these these um, the air, these natural gifts, the natural bounty must be sustained to assure its functionality. Um, and the problem we're seeing today is that the environmental laws we've got on the books are allowing uh, incredible damage to these resources. And that's why the public trust doctrine is so important to um, reinvigorate today because we have to remind government officials that their primary duty 
um, in, in a constitutional sense, really, is to protect the quality of the resources and the functionality, um, even if statutory law allows them to issue permits to destroy these crucial resources. Well, it, it is, as a matter of logic, the case that where there's crucial resources that support society, government cannot abdicate its responsibility over those resources. And that is exactly what the TPP does. It flies in the face of the principles set down in public trust case law um, in the 1800s by the U.S. Supreme Court. There's a, a landmark case that was decided in the late 1800s called Illinois Central Railroad, where the state of Illinois granted the shoreline of Lake Michigan to a private railroad company. And so it abdicated its, the, public's, um, the public's rights in that shoreline. Um, it also abdicated its sovereignty, in, in a sense, over the shoreline. While it could regulate the shoreline, it didn't have ownership of the shoreline. And the Supreme Court said, you can't do that. Um, every legislature is bound by the public trust and has the duty to carry it out, and it forms a limit on what the legislature can do. So you can't abdicate your sovereignty over these crucial resources. My understanding of the, the TPP is um, that is exactly what it does. Um, and so if there were specific instances where a local or a state agency were trying to protect a resource and a corporation were challenging that, I would imagine there would be a very, um, a very robust public trust challenge to that corporation's position. Now, Dr. Wood, um, it will be quick to tell you, Mary Mary Wood will be quick to tell you that she is not responsible for the Our Children's Trust court cases which are going on in the U.S., um, but the uh, the doctrine of the public trust that she has been promoting um, is the source of these court cases and a recent uh, uh, victory in Washington, which um, directed, I think, the Washington version of the EPA to begin taking into account the welfare of future generations, which is, um, you know, that's what it's all about. So here's uh, Mary talking about our children's trust. Yeah, um, so atmospheric trust litigation is now a global litigation campaign. It involves petitions and lawsuits filed in every state in this country and in some countries abroad by the group Our Children's Trust. Um, I'm not part of that group, but I originated the approach to this litigation, and it's just simply an application of the public trust principle <clears throat> to our atmosphere and to the climate crisis we face. It's very simple. It just says governments around the world and around the country share the duty as co-trustees of our common atmosphere to protect it uh, for future generations. And as co-trustees, each one has the duty to lower carbon dioxide emissions within their own jurisdictions to comply with the scientific prescription that leading scientists say ne is necessary to prevent runaway uh, heating that would make this uh, country uninhabitable. And so youth have taken this public trust principle to court um, and have <clears throat> demanded in suits against governors 
and in petitions against agencies, demand the government to um, come forth with a plan, just a plan to lower uh, carbon dioxide emissions within the jurisdictions as, um, as deemed necessary by this prescription. Now, we are actually seeing a lot of movement on that front, as you mentioned, the recent victory uh, with the Children's Trust case, but also lots of other shifts and changes on the climate front. This is one fellow we talked with, Mathis Wackernagel, who is a PhD and the president of the Global Footprint Network, who brought us the rather scary story of Earth Overshoot Day, which is the day each year that the human species uses more resources from the Earth than the Earth can restore. Let's talk with Mathis. Mathis, I ran across this phrase, Earth Overshoot Day, online, as I do so many things. And uh, the more I read about it, the more I really got the shiver and chill sense that everyone needs to know exactly what Earth Overshoot Day is. So let's just jump right in and start there. What is it, and why is it so important that we understand it? It's quite a simple idea. Like with money, we can do accounting with resources. But that's what we do at Global Footprint Network. We compare how much Earth can renew in terms of resources to how much we take. We call that the ecological footprint. It's essentially how much nature it takes to support our material metabolism. And if we overshoot that uh, that total, we're taking it from the future, is what... It- it's like with money, yes. Is when I spend more than what I earn, the difference has to come from somewhere. Either we deplete our inheritance or we start to build up debt. And that's the same with nature. We can use nature more rapidly than it renews. For example, we can cut trees more quickly than they regrow. We can pump water out of the ground more quickly than it recharges. We can catch fish more rapidly than they renew. We can pump CO2 in the atmosphere more rapidly than is being sequestered, etc. So it's possible to use more than what is being renewed, but obviously not forever. Mm-hmm. Has there ever been a year in which we didn't use more than could be renewed? I mean, is this a recent overspending of our debt? Uh, has humanity always done this? Uh, do you keep track of such things? Overshoot in itself is a common ecological occurrence. I mean, we see that from animals that overuse some areas, but then has consequences for the animal populations, that the population will have to shrink because there's not enough food around, etc. So locally, even people have overshot for, like, through history. But what is new is that we're doing it at the global scale. Our calculations that are relatively conservative um, just show that since the early 70s, humanity has started to use more than what Earth can renew. And our present estimate for the year 2015 is that we are about 62% over the absolute renewal rate. Oh, so this isn't like a minor borrowing uh, problem. This is like, you know, your teenager took a credit card and (laughs) put a whole bunch of things on it, and uh, you're in some real debt situation problems going on. Only it seems that teenagers understand the concept better. I I just gave a a, a little seminar to a class of... I think it was 10-year-olds, not even teenagers, and I said, why would we want to need... Why would you... And I asked them, why would you want to know how much nature we use compared to how much we have and the girl just put up her hand and said if we use more than what we have the only thing left to eat is imaginary cookies (laughs) so I thought thought that was quite cute Uh, a little wrong of course because we can use more for some time and still not 
eat imaginary cookies, but we do deplete our inheritance. So, so the uh, the parallel is we're like instead of uh, kids with a credit card, we're like the um, retirees in a big tricked out RV <laughs> and the uh, the bumper sticker that says we're spending our ch- our children's inheritance. Kind of, yeah, <laughs> and I mean, yeah. And our own. I mean, it's, we always think it's so far into the future, but we already feel some of the implications ourselves. Uh, obviously, if you have a lot of money, you can shield yourself more easily from the consequences. But even for higher-income countries, uh, the, the resource constraints have real implications. I live now in California, for example. If you look at the lack of, um, of water, um, reduces the ability of agriculture to produce and makes life more difficult. So physical reality does have an impact on life. One thing about Earth Overshoot Day is that it is a day that we mark annually or or the uh, Global Footprint Network marks annually and helps people understand when the day comes that we uh, have passed what we could consider our sustainable allocation for the year. And that day is, this year, it's August 13th, which is several weeks ago, and it's actually six days earlier than it was last year. Can you talk a little bit about that difference in the six days or what it's compared to in other years? Uh, what is this, what, what should we know about this particular day? I mean, even if Earth Overshoot Day was on December 31st, I wouldn't be totally happy because we share this planet with other species too. They also are hungry. The fish I eat is not available to the seal, etc. So using the entire planet's budget may not be the wisest thing either, but obviously better than what we do right now. What we also see is that the trend is going in the wrong direction, that uh, even though we have such high overshoot, we continue to increase our metabolism, which is driven by a number of factors. It's a larger population, uh, larger consumption per person. Uh, the efficiency increases are not keeping up with the increase of demand, etc. So there are these various factors uh, making the overall metabolism even larger. So we are... Even if we kept overshoot at the level we are today, that wouldn't be a good sign. It's like if you continue to spend 50% more or 60% more than what you earn over time, that's not great. We need to get some global resource credit counseling. Probably, yeah. And not just global. I think it's individual. I think that's one of the big misconceptions that we think, oh, it's a big global problem. I would think think it's really a global storm. And we need to think about ourselves more and say, what does that mean? Is our city ready for that storm? Because we always do as, oh, wow, I have a hole in my boat, but let's wait till everybody else agrees to fix their own boat first. Mm -hmm. That doesn't seem to be very reasonable. Of course, what Mathis is discussing and the reason we are overshooting our resources is largely on the head of uh, the corporations because corporations only know about profit and um, you know conservation cuts into profit, which leads into our next guest, Jeff Clements, who is the author of uh, Corporations Are Not People, um, and he had quite a few projections about what would happen as a result of the 2010 Citizens United ruling. They all pretty much came true. Uh, he came on the show to commiserate with us and to talk about uh, 
the his new visions of what's happening and how we can deal with the trouble that we find ourselves in. And here's Jeff. Yeah, it's, a, it's been quite a ride. I, you know, I did a brief in the Citizens United case as, as a lawyer for some public interest organizations, democracy organizations, and the case happened in 2010. And I wrote the first edition of Corporations Are Not People not long after that, 2011. And at the time, a lot of it was about how it happened, how we got to the Citizens United decision where the, the Supreme Court, five to four, ruled that essentially that the biggest global corporations are the same as people for political purposes, speech purposes, and could spend the kind of money we've now seen in politics. So we need a constitutional amendment. It would be the 28th Amendment to the Constitution. It would reverse the Citizens United decision. It would end the fabrication of corporate rights and restore the Constitution's underpinnings to, as it opens, we the people, not we the corporations. So, Except that corporations uh, are people, so... Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, until we win our constitutional amendment. And, you know, 16 states have enacted amendment resolutions calling for a constitutional amendment, including New Mexico and 15 other states. California forced, essentially, by great organizing, really hard work, forced the legislature to put this on the ballot, a ballot initiative in November that would have called for California to condemn Citizens United and California politicians to get to work winning the 28th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution to reverse it. And they had 176,000 faxes going into the state house to get that, tens of thousands of phone calls, 99 Rise, an exciting activist group led by Kai Newkirk and others, marched 500 miles from Los Angeles to Sacramento calling for this kind of reform. And so it went to the ballot. And as you say, Getch, just last week, the Supreme Court of California pulled it off the ballot, said essentially denied the people of California a right to vote on this. Now that the fight isn't over, that case will go on. There's an effort to make sure it gets on the 2016 ballot. But again, this is a judiciary that is a little bit out of step, to say the least. I've become convinced that the, these results that we're seeing and the disabling of democracy to those who took us down this road, that's not a flaw or a negative. That's what was intended. So, you know, in the book, I talk about Lewis Powell. He was a Chamber of Commerce corporate lawyer. He was on the board of the Philip Morris Cigarette Corporation in 1970 and on the board of about 16 other corporations. And he wrote a secret memo to the Chamber of Commerce at the time. It's known as the Powell Memo. You may have heard of it. Yeah, he outlined the plan. He outlined, He said, you know, corporations have to get much more aggressive. Democracy is kind of out of control. We're getting environmental laws after Earth Day. We're getting consumer protection laws. And he essentially prescribed a, a very aggressive, fully funded, long-term corporate effort to change the Constitution and change our democracy. He even said we need to use an activist-minded Supreme Court to drive social, legal, and economic change. But he then went on the Supreme Court. Richard Nixon appointed him to the court. A year or two later, he goes on the Supreme Court and he writes four decisions in about eight years that created the idea of corporate speech, corporate speakers, and basically led the frameworks in a straight line to Citizens United. So from his perspective, the results we see where corporations have huge amounts of influence and the people have a lot less 
that was part of the plan. I have a new chapter in the book, the new updated book, and it's called Do Something. So there's a lot that people can do. And the first thing I have to say, though, is, Rivera, I entirely agree with you that the nonviolent tools are the effective ones. Violence is not effective. It doesn't work. There's huge progress and work that can be done in a nonviolent way, and that's the effective way. So I essentially have three prongs that people can plug into where they think it works for them, and it's sort of around constitutional challenge, you know, take back our constitution, take back our rights. Um, that's number one. Number two is the what I kind of call clean the swamp. You know, it's political change. It's lobbying reform. It's the public funding of elections. It's the, just calling out and demanding a change to things that are absolutely systemic corruption that are just treated as if by the media and politicians as if it's just the way things are done. It shouldn't be the way things are done. And there's a lot of specific ways people can work on laws and organizing to change that. And then the third one is, I think, something like you were alluding to, which is changing the corporation. It's remembering that corporations only exist under our laws. There's no right to have a corporation. There's no right to incorporate. It doesn't exist in nature. They're creations of state law, and we can change those laws. Well, we're right on theme because Jeff Clements reminded us that nonviolent struggle is the way to move forward with so many of these issues. And that's what we're going to focus on in the next part of today's Occupy Radio show. We have Philippe Duhamel coming up. Now, this is actually my favorite Occupy Radio interview because Philippe came up with this idea with the people in Quebec uh, to use a plan of strategic civil resistance as a deterrent to the fracking industry. So they don't have, didn't have to wage the struggle. They had to show that they were willing and able to wage the struggle. This is a pretty smart and savvy move. Let's go hear from Philippe. Here we are today, and we fear, of course, that the industry will come back. We're pretty sure it will. Uh, the resource here is abundant. It's not very far from the surface, so easy to access, uh, relatively cheap, because we basically don't have very much uh, royalties uh, being asked. We have antiquated laws here that are different from the U.S. People whose land they would develop on don't even get to have a share of the benefits of fracking. So you see the situation. So at this point, we're saying we need to develop something totally new, something that hasn't been seen very much before. If you study movements, especially around extractive industries, you'll find that many times citizens, because we're not as well equipped, because we don't have consultants telling us everything about what happened around the world and working on the design of our things like the industry does, we end up being quite reactive. We are caught in a situation where the industry controls when and where and how it's going to build its infrastructure, the destructive infrastructure. So we think we need to change the way we operate to become much more preventative in our approach. Hence, we developed this concept that we call deterrent nonviolent action. We are working together with local citizen-based groups to train proactively, preventatively, groups of people in using 
nonviolent direct action, civil disobedience. Be prepared to stand in the way of the industry if they should come back. And what got us on that track was a quote from Michael Binion. He's the CEO of one of the major fracking companies in Canada. It's called Questair. They're based in Alberta, where the tar sands come from. So they have a lot of experience. And he said this to the press in Quebec, which I think was a mistake. But he said a fracking operation costs about half a million dollars a day. So he said, that's why I won't pay this kind of money if the risk is too high that protesters will chain themselves to installations or stop my teams from working. Michael Binion, CEO of Kester. We said, thank you, sir. Thanks for sharing the recipe. Uh, we said, we, we're not, we're not going to work to gather the ingredients and cook it up for you because we, we now know, and the industry seems to agree, uh, studies have come out that recognize that citizen organizing nonviolent blockades are a very powerful way to impose a cost on the industry and generate a lot of public support uh, when done well that really puts the industry at risk uh, locally. So this strategic framework we've developed of nonviolent parents saying we got to stand prepared is what we've developed over the course of these many months trying to find a way to be proactive and not always on the defensive. Because as you know, being defensive is, is pretty much the sound of defeat in these kinds of uh, conflicts. What about the issue on your plate right now is fracking. But as we have learned from experience, our communities actually face a variety of problems that are being brought to our communities by destructive industries and corporate politics. What role do you see this sort of training in a community, the building of maybe a civilian nonviolent defense group? What role do you see them playing in the future where we do need to confront these major issues? I like that you bring in the concept of nonviolent civilian defense because there's an element of that in the sense that what we're trying to do at this stage is really learn the techniques, not only the techniques, the, the strategy, and, I, and when I mean strategy, I, I just don't mean cold strategy of the kind that the military and the government and the industry apply, but strategy with heart, that people learn how to wage struggle. And that knowledge, once acquired, can never be forgotten. And hence, if you ask me deep down what motivates me, it is is exactly that, working with people who are in the process of learning so that we can develop better and more organized and, and really truer to our beliefs, forms of movements, practicing, practicing, evaluating, starting again. That's the process that I'm most interested about because you're right, these forms of threats may come in the form of the fracking industry, then it's a mining development, then it's clear-cut logging, then it's a threat to the water, to the air. This is a system that we're faced with that calls for very serious change. And if we can root a movement that knows how to wage struggle, then we have the means to defend our land. And we have the means to rebuild democracy from the ground up, uh, from the grassroots up to the sky. Because <laughs> that's really, there's no limit. That from the basic principles of how U.S. democracy was built, Canadian democracy was built, everywhere 
democracy was built through people's movements. It never came from the top. So that's really my hope, is that through learning how to defend our land through civil resistance, through nonviolent direct action, and all many other kinds of tactics, we can learn how to be better together, more organized, and happier. You know, Rivera, it makes perfect sense that the last episode of Occupy Radio will finish with a thorough exploration of the value of nonviolent civil resistance. And you said that you liked the, this, this interview with Philippe um, uh, quite a bit, and I, I have found myself repeatedly referring to that one point that he made where the, uh, you know, the CEO of the extractive firm came out and said that they can't afford protesters. They can't afford to lose the money that protesters will cause them to lose. It was it was such a significant admission of weakness and one that I, I am waiting to see other protesters, um, uh, you know, take advantage of to with with the uh, success that Philippe's group did. I think, you know, in some of our other episodes of Occupy Radio, we did see a few um threads of connection to that when Eileen Flanagan came on to talk about Earthquaker Action Team with uh, George Lakey and all of them they also were using very very, uh, similar approaches to using the information that's known about the vulnerability of the fossil fuel industry to leverage that knowledge into change before the the next level of the, the struggle could ensue I think we also saw in other news that the Dutch Bank, the Royal Dutch Bank, I think, um, decided not to fund any new fossil fuel um, projects. And this is not because of the fossil fuel problems, uh, not because of their gracious goodwill about climate change and all that, but actually because they know the security risk to their investments from the pro protesters of fossil fuels. So we, we have, we're getting into something here. We're getting into some knowledge and skills. And uh, let's hope that we are actually living in one of the most exciting times in human history when people put these ideas to use. And that's why we've been doing this whole show. And also the show two weeks ago, pulling out these best ideas that we've been so honored to hear from our guests over the, the years of doing this show. Definitely. And getting to remind our listeners of the journey that we've been on and the journey that's yet to come as we apply these concepts in our own world. It's been a, it has been a great honor to bring these ideas forward to our listeners and to, at the same time, learn about all this stuff. This has been a heck of an uh, educational experience, uh, meeting with these phenomenal people and having them allow us to spend time with them and and prod them with questions uh, it you know how do you how do you even quantify qualify just how how amazing that experience has been well, I think I would say to all of our listeners, if you, you want to get one of the, the best eclectic and in-depth ed- educations that you can imagine, start hosting a podcast yes. and inviting people on your show. You'd be amazed at who will come, who will be gracious and show up, even if they're ex- 
extremely busy, extremely well-known, or what hidden gems you will discover in your friends and neighbors and citizens just because you needed a guest desperately for that next week. Both of these have been such a, a blessing to us along the way. And, you know, our last clip for today's show is probably one of these these great guests that in three minutes she was able to give us probably the most important knowledge to have surfaced in the last 10 years. This is Erica Chenoweth, the co-author of Why Civil Resistance Works, and uh, her groundbreaking book has changed everything. The big findings are, first of all, that nonviolent resistance uh, succeeds about twice as often as violent insurgency in achieving these goals that I mentioned, these maximalist goals. Um, they also achieve significant concessions about twice as often as the violent insurgencies. Um, the second big point is that um, the rate of effectiveness of nonviolent resistance has been increasing fairly steadily over time, um, where nonviolent resistance has become increasingly uh, successful. Um, whereas violent insurgencies have become increasingly unsuccessful. So notwithstanding, you know, the news on Boko Haram or ISIS or anything like that, um, the trend is actually uh, down in terms of violent insurgencies winning uh, very often. And then um, the third major point is that uh, not only is nonviolent resistance becoming more successful, it's becoming much more frequent. Uh, so in a very real sense, violent insurgency is going out of style in a major way right now, um, where the, the onset of new uh, Violent uprisings is declining significantly. It's dropped steeply since the 90s. Um, and the uh, onset and frequency of, of new nonviolent campaigns has, has just spiked in a major way, especially since about 2000. Um, and then the, the fourth big finding is that uh, the way that these campaigns unfold really affects the way the countries are after the campaigns are over. Um, so countries in which uh, civilians have used nonviolent resistance are significantly more likely to emerge with relatively more democratic institutions. They're significantly less likely to experience a relapse into civil war within 10 years. Um, they're significantly less likely to result in mass atrocities during the course of the conflict that then initiate cycles of retaliatory violence that make the country um, infrastructure fall apart and that result in the massive loss of life um, over the course of, of civil conflict. And uh, basically these outcomes um, suggest that not only does civil, resist does civil resistance work sort of in the short term in terms of um, achieving victory for these, uh, these people, but also that in the longer term, the countries are much more kind of stable and set on a path um, to build whatever society it is they want to. And um, that doesn't mean that uh, every country emerges perfect after a campaign and it's some utopian solution here, but it, but it does suggest that compared with armed insurgency, um, the types of, of uh, circumstances that civil resistance leaves behind are much more amenable to people building more kind of consensus-oriented institutions, um, social programs, and, and things like that. Well, that was Erica Chenoweth, the last guest of Occupy Radio, I guess, you know, at least uh, the last uh, pre-recorded guest of Occupy Radio. And 
you know, over the years, you do run into a few people uh, more often than not when you're making a weekly radio show. And I'd like to thank a few of those people. Um, I guess first on the list is Joe Tindall, who uh, I hosted the co-hosted the show with for the first year. And he's the one who actually went into KWVA and pitched them on the idea of hosting Occupy Radio. And I actually didn't join the show until two or three weeks later. So uh, we definitely have to give Joe a, a thumbs up for getting the show going. Um, Mike Elliott uh, sat in for about two or three months at the end of 2012 um, with Joe and me, and he helped to um, create the Conspiracy Christmas Show, Rivera. Uh, so we have to we have to thank Mike for that. Um, Eric Kovner was our first um, producer, and the the. Uh, the layout of the show, the way that the show works, is uh, a creation of Eric's. Um, when Joe and I were doing the show up until Joe left the show, it was much more freeform. And uh, then um, right after Joe left, Eric and I got together and he helped to create this format that um, became the format that Rivera and I have, I think, perfected. Don't you think, Rivera? <laughs> well, not to pat ourselves on the back too much, but I think, think we are getting the show down by now. I think uh, so. You know, we should also remember to thank the close to 250 guests that we've had on the shows over the years. Um, and also, you know, we did thank the listeners. It's always good to thank you all again. Thank mm -hmm. you so much. Um, and then we got to thank our silent partners, Sue Sierra Lupe and Daryl Garner, for the countless hours of being very quiet in our houses while uh -huh. we record with guests. Thank you both so much. And my son, Aaron, who every once in a while just had to deal with less bandwidth when he was playing video games downstairs while we were recording. Uh, That's right. It yeah. takes a whole village to make Occupy Radio. That's right. And I want to be sure to thank Aaron Spears of Mike Check Radio, my yearly co-host of the Conspiracy Christmas special, which will be back next year, though I imagine it will have a slightly different name than uh, Occupy Radio Conspiracy Christmas special. That's right. Well, you know, Getch, this is the moment. This is it. This is it, the final last few moments. And before we take the show on out, I just want to thank you for all the wonderful, wonderful times doing this show. Well, and I want to thank you for coming on board and raising the quality up a notch, Rivera. And I, want to, I, I hope for the best with you and Sherry with Love and Revolution starting next week. And likewise on Chaos Theory Radio. How about for our New Year's resolution, we resolve to co-host uh, some new shows for all of these listeners who love us so much. I would love that. That would be great. Let's put it on the calendar somewhere in 2016. How about every week? Uh, well, maybe not that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm about to start a, a mini vacation. <laughs> But hey, 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 uh, right now, this is the last time that Occupy Radio is going to be heard on KWVA 88.1 FM out of the University of Oregon and uh, syndicated on the Pacifica Radio Network. So that's it. Uh, times are changing. 
Well, occupiers and listeners, if we've got you thinking about things in this show, you know, we didn't drop off the face of the planet, you can actually still reach us by giving us an email at OccupyRadio23 or a tweet to that same uh, Twitter handle, OccupyRadio23. We are still Occupy Radio on Stitcher and iTunes, and you can find our archives um, all over the place, so keep looking for them. You can also connect to our other podcasts, Chaos Theory Radio and Love and Revolution Radio via Stitcher and iTunes. You can find Getch and I on Facebook under our own names and also on the Occupy Radio group page. And everything you're looking for Occupy Radio related is still at OccupyRadio.org. And for the last time for Occupy Radio, I'm David Getchy, Sierra Lupe, and we're ringing out 2015 occupiers by raising a toast to all that's come before and all that is yet to come. This is our last episode of Occupy Radio, and it'll be out with the old and in with the new by the time we don't talk to you next week. <laughs>